0: This week in China's History, march second, nineteen sixty nine. How close exactly were Russia and China to nuclear war? Written by James Carter. Published in Sub China. Read for you by Kaiser Guo. Many places in the northern hemisphere are starting to emerge from winter, but Jinbao Island is not one of them. Icebound for half of the year, the tiny island sits near the west bank of the Usuri River on the boundary between Russia, where Jinbao is known as Damansky Island, and China. Just a mile long and half as wide, when it is not submerged by spring floods, it seems an unlikely catalyst for a nuclear war. Yet it nearly was just that in the spring of 1969. The Usuri had been designated as a boundary between Russia and China in 1860. When the Treaty of Peking took from the Qing Empire the vast area east of Manchuria, sometimes called Outer Manchuria, Russia gained a long Pacific coastline, which is now the Russian maritime region, including the port of Vladivostok. In a departure from standard international procedures, the boundary was placed on the Chinese bank of the river, usually the center line of a river was used, meaning that all islands in the river would be Russian territory. The heirs to the treaty kept the border but disagreed about what constituted the bank of the river in some cases. The arcane question of whether Jinbao Island was an island in the river or a feature of the Chinese bank became tense as relations between the USSR and PRC foundered in the 1960s. The People's Republic had railed against an entire raft of unequal treaties imposed on Qing China in the 19th century. Yet the Chinese position was not to recover the vast territory, 65,000 square miles, taken by Russia in 1860, but to more clearly establish the boundaries. Clashes, with occasional casualties, had become frequent in the 1960s at several spots along the border, though none were as serious as the Junbao Island encounters. On the morning of March 2, 1969, thirty or so Chinese soldiers crossed the ice onto the island. and were confronted by Soviet border guards. This much is agreed upon, but little else, not even the time of day when the fighting started. In the initial Soviet account, described by Thomas Robinson in the American Political Science Review, the front row of the Chinese, apparently unarmed, stepped aside to reveal a second line of Chinese soldiers which opened fire on the Soviets with submachine guns. At that point, About 300 Chinese troops who had secretly dug foxholes on the island the night before emerged from their hiding place and added to the ambush, charging the Soviets. By the time the fighting ended, about 30 Soviet soldiers were dead, along with an unknown smaller number of Chinese. In a later article, historian Yang Kui-sung presents the Chinese version of events, which differs mainly in that the Russians fired first. However, even in this case, Yang describes the Chinese side's actions as an ambush and consensus among scholars, including Taylor Fravel in the book Strong Borders, Secure Nation, and Lyle Goldstein in the paper Return to Junbao Island, conclude that the Chinese side probably fired first. In any event, they had definitely planned something. The two sides re-engaged two weeks later. On March 15th, tanks, artillery, and many hundreds of troops did battle. Currently available sources make it impossible to know precisely what happened, but the best estimates are that the March battles led to more than 200 Soviet dead and wounded, and about half that number of Chinese. Even allowing for the uncertainty in the details, the seriousness of what had happened cannot be overstated. Shots fired between two nuclear powers is always cause for alarm, even if there were no casualties. In this case, dozens, at least, were dead and hundreds wounded, in a series of calculated engagements. Analyzing the news at the time, the U.S. State Department concluded in its first report on the subject, now available as part of George Washington University's National Security Archive, that the incident was, quote, not likely to lead to wider fighting in the near future. However, similar incidents are to be expected from time to time, End quote. This almost blasé response seemed optimistic, even naive, in the months that followed. Moscow threatened a nuclear response. Dozens of Chinese cities constructed multi-level underground bomb shelters, repurposed in the 1980s as seedy shopping malls. Soviet threats to launch missiles against China's own nuclear program in Xinjiang finally brought the PRC to the negotiating table. Not until September, when Zhou Enlai and Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin met at Beijing's capital airport, did tensions ease. We can see in hindsight that the border clash did not lead to war. The march battles were the last armed conflict between the Chinese and the Soviets on this part of the boundary, though some casualties were incurred further west on the border with Kazakhstan. Still, two key questions remain. What caused the violence and what were its consequences? Tensions between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic had been growing for more than a decade, and in that sense the conflict was not a surprise. As to why the Chinese provoked, as they seem to have, the bloodshed, it may have been down to the newly aggressive Brezhnev Doctrine, which claimed for the USSR the right to intervene against communist parties it deemed counter revolutionary. The doctrine had sent Soviet tanks rolling into Prague a few months earlier and some Chinese strategists feared that they might be next. Also important to remember is that this was taking place in the midst of Mao's great proletarian cultural revolution. Amid internal rivalry and conflict, a common external enemy that might provide cohesion was valuable to China's leaders. In terms of consequences, it is easy to say that there were few because the conflict was resolved without full-scale war, but that is a superficial read. The secret Third Front Project, detailed for the first time in English in an important new book by Covel Mayskins, was an enormously costly endeavor, relocating Chinese heavy and military industries from coastal cities to a remote inland base. The Third Front was well underway by the time of the border clash, but the fighting only confirmed PRC fears of the Soviet Union, and caused redoubled efforts to pour money into the project that, according to Mayskins, dramatically altered the economic trajectory of the PRC. Another consequence of the clash was that it opened the door for U.S.-China relations. As it became plausible to argue that the Soviets and not the Americans represented the greater threat, a reconfiguration of the Cold War became possible, one that in effect allied the U.S. and China against the Soviet Union. Three years later, the American president was arriving in Beijing. Sergei Redchenko opined on the 50th anniversary of the clash that it changed history by setting the PRC on a path toward rapprochement with the American, but the border fighting did not begin the process of China's pivot away from the USSR and toward the USA. The split with Russia was a decade old, and Chinese strategists had already started considering how improved relations with the U.S. could give them leverage against the Soviets. The incident ought not to be seen as a calculated bid to bring the two sides of the Pacific closer together. Historian Lorenz Luthi has argued that there is no evidence that the Chinese side planned the incident in order to advance its overtures toward the U.S., He also points out that planning by both the Americans and the Chinese to thaw relations between the two countries predated the Zhenbao island fighting by several years. Nonetheless, the incident accelerated the process and made many in the Chinese leadership open to the possibility. The talks between the Soviets and the Chinese that began in 1969 continued for some time without resolution. Just before the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, Most of the boundary issues were settled, including the transfer or recognition of Zhenbao Island to Chinese sovereignty. Remaining issues were settled almost always with the cession of territory to China in 2003 and 2008. The Russian-Chinese border is no longer the world's longest as it was during Soviet times, nor are the two states the world's largest communist countries, but the shared interests of the two Asian giants remains a potent force, at least potentially. The events of 1969 are a reminder, however, that Chinese-Russian conflict has been much more the norm than the exception, even when the two states were ideologically and strategically aligned. The so-called Longer Telegram, anonymously published by the Atlantic Council, asserts that China and Russia have now achieved a level of strategic condominium with each other in countering U.S. regional and global interests. This seems to me overstated. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping seem concerned primarily with internal dominance and their own cults of personality, rather than the building of grand alliances. This week in China's history is a weekly column.